We're going to be back in Romans today. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there are some close to you. We encourage you to grab one, just get used to handling, handling them and looking through and following along with where we are. We'll be on page 942, 943 in that section in the Black Bibles. Uh, 942, 943, Romans chapter 6. And today, the title is Union with Christ. We're going to be in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And this is a really big theological category, union with Christ. And much of our understanding of what it means to be saved by Jesus uh, can be connected back to this concept that we are one with him in Christ. If you read through the New Testament, that phrase is repeated again and again. If you just did a word search, just look for all the places where it says we are in Christ or in Jesus or in him. Those phrases repeatedly are spoken of. Here in this text, Paul's going to remind us of how important it is that we are one with Christ. Um, Last week in chapter 5, we saw the concept that Sin is abounding and increasing in our life, but Paul says that grace is superabounding. Grace abounds all the more. How much more do we have grace in Christ? And so this week, that causes Paul to start with a question. So if grace is abounding all the more, does that mean we should sin more so that grace would abound more? And Paul's going to say, No, that's ridiculous, right? That's basically his answer, but we're going to spend more time on it than that. Um, It reminded me of a story I heard years ago when I was a new Christian. I read this book about the Christian life, and there was a story in the book about a man who owned a really nice restaurant, and he found a homeless man in the alley behind his restaurant digging through the dumpster and eating scraps out of the dumpster. And so the man's heart was broken for this homeless guy, and he brought him in to his restaurant, and he said, I I would love to feed you. Um, He heard some of his story, felt sorry for him, walked him through the restaurant, showed him all the choices, took him into the kitchen and said, what would you like to eat? And the homeless man said, well, I'd really like to go back out to the dumpster. That's what I would like to eat. I'd like to eat scraps of garbage. And of course, the story shows the absurdity of what it's like in our life when God offers us all the grace that we need to live a new life. And we say, well, I'd, I'd rather go back to sin. And that's Paul's point in this passage is that it's, it's absurd, that it doesn't really make sense. Why would we want to do that? Now, it can be troubling when we read this because we realize, those of us that are honest at least, we're like, but I do that sometimes, right? And so we can be afraid. Is, is, there, is there something wrong? And I would say, well, yeah, there is something wrong. We shouldn't do that, but that's often our experience. And it's absurd. And Paul says it doesn't make sense for us to do that. So let's, let's read through the text and we'll see... Uh, where he grounds us in all the riches that Christ gave to us. So he starts off with the question, chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were unified with him in death. Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let me ask God to teach us. We'll pray for a moment. We, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear your word, to receive it, um, that you would change us, that your spirit would meet us here and, and speak to who we are and, and where we run to find shelter and how really you are, you are the only place to run to. So we, we ask that you would make us new by your word, by your spirit, that you would be among us here. Help us to have eyes of faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is one of those passages where I've just been praying all week because there's just way too much to cover in this passage. Fortunately, Paul's going to come back to many of these themes throughout the book of Romans. So we're going to continue to hit on a lot of these things as we go on. So I don't want you to feel like, oh, we're missing out on everything because there's just no way to really work through every little piece that's here. So encourage you to go back and read it yourself and be prayerful. I'm going to try to hit on the highlights of what is here. I'm going to try to hit on the big ideas of what Paul is saying. And the first thing that I want us to see in the text is that when we have union with Christ, we have a union with a new exodus, a new exodus. Because I think this is an important concept for you to see that will help the rest of Romans make more sense, and really the rest of the New Testament. So I want to kind of prove this to you from the whole Bible, and then we'll look specifically at the text we have today. And the way I would start is by helping you to think back to the Old Testament. If you've read the Old Testament before, what is the great story of rescue that is brought up again and again throughout the Old Testament? Well, that story would be the Exodus. So the Exodus is a book in the Old Testament, right? It's the second book, and that's the the book that primarily discusses this. But every book in the rest of the Old Testament talks about it. It keeps going back to it. If you read the Psalms and the worship songs we have in that book, they're always talking about how we know that we can trust God, that we can run to him as a fortress because he is this God that rescued his people in the Exodus. And so what is the Exodus? For those of you that are not real familiar with the Old Testament, the Exodus was the Israelites' exit out of Egypt. They were rescued. They were in slavery in Egypt, and God dramatically, supernaturally rescued them out of their slavery in Egypt. He took them at the kind of climax of this exit and rescue. He took them through the Red Sea, and he used Moses to save his people, and the waters were divided, and it was this very dramatic rescue. And so what you could say is that in a sense, the Exodus event is the cross of the Old Testament. The Exodus event is the cross of the Old Testament in the sense that we, as New Testament followers of Jesus, continually look back to the cross and say, this is how we know that God has rescued us, by the cross. In the same way, before the cross, God's Old Testament people always looked back to the Exodus and said, 
This is how we know we serve a gracious God. He rescued us out of slavery. He made us a people. He took us through those waters of death, and we survived, but the others were killed. And so I just want you to see that that's a theme that comes back again and again. It's really powerful in Luke uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's this story that occurs in the other Gospels as well, uh, but in this scene, Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah on this mountain. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration because the disciples that were with him saw Jesus basically glow and kind of look um, in this, this glorified body, and it was kind of a scary event, and Peter said crazy things at the time. And um, so it was this really scary, amazing, supernatural event where Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah. And what Luke says in the Greek is he says that Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about the exodus that he was about to accomplish. That's literally the Greek. In the English, it just says rescue, right? But it, literally in the Greek, Luke said, Moses is talking to Jesus about his exodus, right? Moses accomplished through God's uh, work the Old Testament exodus, and now Jesus is going to accomplish the New Testament exodus. So in the Old Testament, God's people are rescued from slavery, and in the New Testament, we are rescued from slavery to sin. So we've been moved from that dominion under that empire, under that rule, and now we're in this new land of freedom and grace. And so that kind of helps unlock a lot of the language that Paul is using throughout the section where he talks about slavery and dominion and reign and rule. We've been rescued out of that place. So now let's go back to the text here and, and try to pick apart a little bit of what he's saying as he, as he goes through an order. Starting in verse 1, he says, what shall we say then? He says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Again, this is a reference to last week where Paul said there's two ways to live, right? There's sin and grace, and sin is strong, but kind of like the song we just read, but Jesus is stronger, right? Sin increases, but grace abounds all the more, and the word last week was super abounding. It's this overwhelming power that grace has. So the question is, well, if that's what happens, you know, where sin grows, grace is more powerful, should we sin more so that we see more grace? And Paul is like, you should, you should imagine Paul turning red and kind of getting upset, like, no, no, that's stupid. It's ridiculous. Here in this translation, it says, by no means. Others, it says, may it never be. It's called an emphatic negation in the Greek, which just means it's like a big no, right? It's a big, powerful no. No way. It says in verse 2, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? If you died to sin, why would you still live in it? Basically, Paul's saying this is absurd. It doesn't even make sense. Now, Paul is not saying... Of course not, because we all know Christians never sin, right? That's not what he's saying. He's just saying when we do, it's stupid, okay? So we want to clarify that up front because um, the way that Satan works in our life is his his main power against us is accusation, is judgment. Literally, the, the word Satan and the word devil are Hebrew and Greek, and they mean the one who hurls accusations at you. So you can read this text and you can hear these accusations of, oh no, I'm not perfect. I've sinned. I must not really be a Christian. You know, and you can hear these things. He's not saying you never sin. He's saying you're just stupid when you sin, right? I can handle that, right? I, I'm a Christian and it's stupid when I sin. It's absurd. It doesn't make sense. Why, why should I do that? Why would I do that? You should have an angst and an, you should feel a struggle with sin in your life. And so 
if you sin, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. I, I would say if you just don't care at all and revel in it, then there's a good chance that, well, yeah, maybe you're not a Christian. But if you sin and you struggle and, and you're trying to figure it out and you're, you're trying to put that away, then I would say, okay, you're a Christian and you need to recognize the absurdity of it here. Because he's rescued you out of your slavery and you're saying, can I go back and be a slave again? He set you free. And really, this is sad. This is what the Israelites did. They were rescued from their slavery and some of them complained and said, we'd rather go back and be slaves again. And we look at that and we say, that's absurd. That's crazy. And it's written as an example for us because sometimes we do the same thing. So he goes on and he explains the details of what's been accomplished in this new exodus that we have, right? Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So baptism is a picture like the going through the waters of the Red Sea. It's this picture where we go through waters of death symbolically and we come out to new life. Baptism is a symbol of death and rebirth. There's really two symbols in baptism. It's a washing. We're dramatizing. We're we're demonstrating physically what God has done for us spiritually, right? We're showing people, Jesus washed away my sins. When he died on the cross, he took my sins and he gave me his righteousness. So through baptism, we're demonstrating our spiritual washing through a symbolic washing. And Paul here is really fixating on this second symbol We're also demonstrating that the old me died and the new me rises to new life. So that's why we love to do the full-on plunging, right? I'm not saying it's evil if you've been sprinkled, but we think there's like this more beautiful, rich symbolism in the going down and the coming back up. This being buried in baptism and then rising to new life. It's the symbol of uh, the old me has died and the new me has risen again. I'm, I'm not a part of that anymore. There's now a new me and a new self. So Paul says, if you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, you were baptized into his death. So you died with him on the cross spiritually. In order that, he goes on, excuse me, verse four, we were buried therefore with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism is the symbol, it's the dramatization, but our heart by faith has been actually buried with Christ, and spiritually we've been actually raised from the dead with Christ. So what Paul is saying is, in your baptism, you're you're acting out this union with Christ that you have spiritually with him. And he finishes this little section by saying, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So as we look at baptism, we should look back and think of it as this new exodus that God has um, accomplished for us through the cross. We should remember what God did. So just like in the Old Testament, I grabbed a picture here, kind of dramatizing the exodus, the waters coming in and people passing through. It's this imagery of, of passing through the waters, kind of like going back to Noah's Ark, right? God's people were saved through the waters of judgment and destruction, and the others died. In the Exodus, God's people were saved going through the middle of the waters, and then the others died. And in baptism, we act out the same thing. We're saved going through um, dying with Christ and being raised to new life with him. And so you should look back on your baptism as a reminder that helps you to look back 
on the cross. Because when we're baptized, we're basically acting out all that the cross gives us in Christ. Now, I think it's helpful just to clarify, because this is one of those things that Christians kind of, based on how you were raised, there's different teachings and, and confusion sometimes about this. We don't believe that the baptism itself, that like the water saves you, or my hands pushing you under the water saves you, right? We believe it's your faith in Jesus. We believe that Jesus saves you. And so the New Testament talks about baptism as salvation, because everybody who's a believer gets baptized. It's just something people do to, to show I'm joining with what Jesus is doing in the world, in his church. And so it, it goes together kind of like uh, wedding rings and weddings, right? This is a, a cultural thing. Not all cultures use wedding rings, but it's a demonstration, an illustration that helps, right? If I were to talk to you and say, hey, everybody with a wedding ring on, I really want to encourage you uh, to, to talk to your wives and be a better listener, right? And when I say everybody with a wedding ring on, well, there might be a kid out there that's has dad's wedding ring on his hand, that doesn't mean he's married, right? So you can have the symbol and not really have the relationship, or you can have the relationship and and maybe you lost your ring, right? And so it's a stand-in for the reality. So we just want to clarify that they should go together, but in the New Testament, you can't, you know, you can pry them apart and say they're not exactly the same thing, but they should go together. They should go together. One should demonstrate the spiritual reality. A couple of verses that are helpful to clarify this is 1 Peter 3, 21, where uh, Peter talks about this baptism that saves you. And he's like, but not the washing with water. It's the pledge of a good conscience towards God. So he, again, kind of just separates that, says, okay, yeah, baptism saves you, but only if really you have faith in Jesus. It's really your faith in Jesus, your pledge of your conscience towards God. And another place where that separation is, is clarified is in 1 Corinthians 1, 17, where Paul talks about the gospel, the good news, the hope we have in Jesus being separate from actually baptizing people. He's like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really baptize people. I just preached the gospel, got people saved through faith in Jesus. And we would say really all of Romans clarifies that, that it's, it's ultimately our faith, our reliance on Jesus, not a reliance on, on water or me walking an aisle or a reliance on how much I've, I've cried after a church service or a camp, but my, my reliance, it's not on what I've done. It's, it's a reliance on Jesus and what he accomplished in the cross. That was the exodus. The exodus is what Jesus did by dying for my sins and giving me his resurrection life. So again, starting back with the question at the beginning, should I sin more? Well, no, you shouldn't. Why, why do I sin? Well, when I sin, I'm, I'm forgetting who I really am. When I sin, I'm, I'm acting like a slave and forgetting that I'm not a slave anymore. I've been set free. I've been pulled out of the domain of sin. I've been pulled out of that reign of terror, and I've been placed in this new place of freedom, but I might be falling back to old habits, old emotional hang-ups. So I would ask you to pray, in what ways am I forgetting the rescue that God has accomplished for me? God, will you show me? Where are the areas where, where I'm forgetting, where I'm not living as a free man or a free woman, where I'm, I'm becoming a slave again? What are those areas where I'm pretending I'm not provided for when actually you have provided for me and rescued me out of the domain of sin? The next thing that we see is that we're given union with a new self, a new self or a new identity. And we see this in verses six through 11. Verses six through 11 clarify this new self and says it this way. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So I hope you heard this kind of repetition. He kept saying, we, we know this, we believe this, we, we know this, Th- this is reality. And so Paul is unpacking the reality of what that means to be unified with Christ in this new exodus, this rescue. He says, what that means is that you're united with him in the old you dying, and you're united with him in the new you having resurrection life. It's important to go through the mechanics of of what actually happened there so you know who you actually are. And so he just talks back through that reality. That's why we emphasize the importance of being uh, scripture-based, coming back to the word of what God says is reality, because for all of us, I know I'm just like you are, I can easily fall back to my emotional habits of, well, I know Jesus says that I'm secure in him, but I don't feel secure in Christ. I know Jesus says that I'm new in these ways, but I, I feel like the old me. I have these old habits and these old ticks and these old things that I go back to of how I see myself. And so we need to understand who we are. I, I grabbed a picture here. It's kind of a good example, but kind of a bad example. So here's a slightly creepy picture of a man, old man, if you can't see, it's an old man looking in the mirror seeing a younger man, right? And so in a sense, what it is is the reality that you see in your life doesn't always match the spiritual reality of what God says about you. So there is a, a, a contrast there, right? You're like, okay, this is who I feel like I am, but I need to see how God sees me. I want to say that, so that's a good illustration in that way, but it's a bad illustration in this way in that it's not like the power of positive thinking, right? You're not magically trying to make something true that's not true, because that can get really weird. And, and often, especially in prosperity gospel churches, um, Christian teaching is mixed up with the power of positive thinking. And so the power of positive thinking is I'm just going to say things enough until I force myself to behave differently, Right? So I'm just going to kind of trick myself into something that's not really true about me. Here's the thing. This is actually true. The the God of the universe has actually forgiven you of your sin. He's no longer holding that over your head. In Christ, by, by union with him, God delights in you and he sees you as his own child. And so a, a better illustration so you're not just thinking of yourself, you know, looking in the mirror saying, hey, good looking, and, you know, you're great, you're awesome. Um, so throw that one out. I think a better illustration would be accounting, be accounting. And this, this one's helpful for me because I can be emotional about money sometimes. I don't know if, if you're like this. Um, sometimes you can feel like you have money in the bank. And so you say, I'm just going to go buy stuff because I've got money in the bank. I just feel like it, you know, feels like things are good. And that's not a good way to run your books, okay? Or the opposite can be true, right? If you, if you grew up poor and things were always scarce and you never had enough money, you can, you know, you can fight with your spouse because you're always like, we can't afford it, we can't afford it, we can't afford it, and when actually you can. You've got money in the bank, right? And so we, we often live emotionally uh, out of alignment with the truth. And so what Paul's talking about here with the new self, he's not saying 
pretend something's true that's not true. He's saying, go back over your books. Go back over your books. Reaccount. Look at what Jesus did. Check your bank account again. All the riches of Christ are there. You've been taken care of. You're going to be all right. Live free. Don't continue to enslave yourself any longer. The old you has died. The new you has risen to new life. So he even uses accounting language here. That's where I got the idea, right? In verse 11, he says it this way. He says in verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is often translated reckon. Account. Reckon your books. Go back. You feel like a loser. But Jesus said he took care of your sin on the cross and that you're free and that you're no longer under the dominion of sin. You feel this sense of shame, but Jesus is stronger. I'm so thankful for the songs that Chris picked this week. This is one of those weeks where we didn't really get to talk a lot about what the sermon was going to be about, but he studied and I studied, and the songs he picked were these, these beautiful realities of, of what is being said here. Our shame is strong, but, but Jesus is stronger. We, we feel unsafe, but, but God is our fortress, and we can run to him. And so we need to reaccount. We go back over our books. We often talk about this as, as preaching the gospel to yourself. And this is an important skill for every Christian to learn. We believe that part of what God uses is just showing up here, and I have the awesome privilege of getting to preach the gospel to you. And you get to, to sing the gospel to yourself and to each other, and we get to experience the gospel as we take communion and as we just encourage each other, right? So there are these ways that we sharpen each other in this good news of the new self that we have, the forgiven, set-free, resurrected self that we have in Christ. But you also need to be able to do that in the quiet moments of your own heart when, when you're by yourself. When the accusations come from the evil one, who tells you that you're broken and tells you that you're still a slave, you need to be able to say, no, Jesus rescued me. All of my sins were laid on the cross on him. He died to that sin and he rose to new life and I'm, by faith, I'm with Jesus. I'm secure in him. He is my fortress. And so you need to be able to preach that reality and that truth to yourself about what, is, what God has done for you in Christ. So what are ways that that you struggle to understand that. I'd ask you to, to pray that, that God would help you to clarify that in your own heart. One of the best ways to do this is, is memorizing scriptures that just make it clear, you know, summary verses that you can speak back to yourself, but also just pray and say, Lord, will you, will you help me get it? Will you help me to understand this reality? Will you help me to go back over my books? Because I'm not very good with Excel, right? Will you help me to go back over this and, and speak that into my own heart by your spirit? Clarify? that I'm good, that you've taken care of me in Christ, that, that I don't need to fight and scrap to save myself, but you've saved me. And so as, we, as we're clarifying that new self, that is then what enables us to live the new life. And, and that's where Paul ends up. Paul ends up then with, okay, now what does it look like to live in a new way? And in this final section, we see the transition between what uh, a lot of times theologians call it the indicatives and the imperatives, which is kind of probably if you're an English teacher, you know what that means, but not everybody else, not the rest of us maybe don't understand that. So indicative is like what is, and imperative is what we're commanded to do. So the what is is that you're a new creation in Christ. Your sin was taken care of on the cross. The old you died, the new you has risen to new life. So that's that identity, that self, 
And then now the imperative is, okay, what should you do? What, what do I do now because that's true? And we often reverse this. We often think, if I do enough good things, then I will attract God's attention and he'll love me. And the gospel says, no, God came after you. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He didn't wait for you to clean yourself up. He came, he grabbed you, he rescued you, he brought you into his family. He said, you're mine, now go live this way. And so that's the transition that we make here from verse 11 to verse 12. Verse 11 is consider, reckon, settle your accounts about what Jesus has done for you. Now verse 12, all right, now go, go be good now, right? Go live it out. Go start obeying because of what God has already done for you. So this last one is union with a new fight, a new fight, because he he uses some kind of warfare imagery here. Um, Let's read verse 12. In verse 12, he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Um, So he's using reign, rule. Earlier, we heard dominion, right? So you've been transferred. You're not in that kingdom anymore. You're now in this new kingdom. So don't let sin reign in your mortal body, and literally mortal is like your, your dying body, your earthly body, right? We're kind of falling apart. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This word passion is a key word in the New Testament, a word that Paul uses a lot. It can be translated lust, um, or a real literal translation of it would be over-desire. Um, and what we see here, I, I keep falling back on this old illustration, so I apologize if you're, if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, but you know there's this character Gollum, and in the Lord of the Rings stories, he uh, is obsessed with this magic ring. And so the magic ring has magical powers, and Gollum is obsessed with it, but his obsession with the ring begins to destroy him. And so built into that story is this illustration with how our obsession with maybe a good and nice thing becomes a sin, becomes a passion, becomes a lust that enslaves us and begins to eat away and destroy our soul. So he's saying, no longer be enslaved to these passions, these over-desires, where you take a created thing and say, that created thing can solve all my problems and I'm going to be obsessed with it even though it's destroying you. It's, it's tearing you apart. And so he's saying, no longer give yourself over to obey the passions, the obsessions of your flesh. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So members, he just, he just means your body parts, right? He's saying don't present your body parts uh, as instruments, and that word actually can be translated as weapons. Um, so that's why I'm using kind of the fight analogy here. He's saying don't use your body as a weapon of warfare on the side of the bad guys, right? Like don't keep sinning with your body, but use your body to do good things. Present your body as, as weapons of righteousness. I grabbed a, a picture of some weapons here. A lot of y'all know what these are. I had to ask a soldier, like, are those real weapons or are those like toys? I'm not really sure. He's like, I think they look real. Um, a lot of you in the military are trained with weapons, Right? And Paul is saying, our body can actually be a weapon, an instrument of righteousness. And we want to clarify something that people are sometimes confused about in the New Testament. And what that is, is that Paul often contrasts the flesh and the spirit. And so what we can think from that contrast is that flesh is bad and spirit is good, right? Um, And really in that contrast that Paul is making again and again in the New Testament between flesh and spirit is he's saying, 
Uh, don't serve your flesh, right? My flesh and your flesh is only bad because we're sinners, but God created flesh. God, God made matter. God made the material world, and it's good. And he says we should do good with the material world. It, it's the, the playground, so to speak, where we demonstrate either our faithfulness to God or our unfaithfulness to God. So the material world, our flesh, is not automatically evil. That's really kind of a Greek Gnostic idea that sometimes leaks over into our culture where we think, you know, all that's good are things that I think about or pray about or things that float in the sky. You know, the spiritual world that you can't see, that's good, but this physical world's all just terrible and disgusting. Well, no, God, God made the physical world and he made it for his glory and we are to use our bodies and this world for his glory and his honor. So, so that's the plan that we would, again, as it says here, present Our bodies, our body parts, how he's made us physically, not as weapons of unrighteousness, but of righteousness. So my question for you is, where where are the areas where you struggle and you're caught maybe in habitual sin? Maybe it's a a hang-up that you have where you're, you're using your body to sin. One of the common ones that we see a lot around town, because there's plenty of clubs, is, is drunkenness, right? Instead of dealing with reality, life is hard, we, we escape uh, through alcohol. And the Bible doesn't say it's wrong to have alcohol at all, it just says it's wrong to be drunk. It's, it's wrong to use it as an escape because you can't deal with the realities of life. And so Paul says, both in Ephesians and Philippians, he gives this interesting contrast. Well, instead of being drunk with wine, instead of being filled with wine, instead, why don't you be filled with the Spirit? And he says what that looks like is, singing songs of encouragement to each other, speaking words of what Christ has done. And in one of the um, other parallel passages, he says, instead of be filled with the Spirit, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So the idea is, instead of getting drunk on wine, why don't you get more drunk on Jesus and what he's done for you? And by drunk, I just mean you're filled with it and it begins to take you over, right? It begins to change your course and your, your direction. You begin to live in a different way. So these interesting contrasts throughout the New Testament, I would encourage you, okay, God, what am I struggling with? Where can I take that and then begin to give that over to you? Instead of using that as an opportunity to sin, where can I then change the direction of my body and what I'm doing with my life? A lot of us, we might struggle with our mouth. might be a part of our body where we use our mouth to sin, right? We say things that tear people down, maybe gossip, um, discouragement, being judgmental. All right, God, what would it look like for my mouth to be a weapon of righteousness? That I would use my words to encourage and build others up. Lord, can you show me that contrast, how to live that new life? Again, we don't do this, the imperative, we don't do the imperative to attract God's attention and win his blessing because we don't think he loves us yet. We do it because of the indicative, because we know the riches we already have in Christ because we know the rescue he's accomplished. So now we're trying to live as free men and free women. I'd I'd ask you to just pray. Lord, show me, where are these areas? Look through the scriptures. See see where are the the places where I might be going in this direction, but I I can take that and turn it in a new way. You might be someone who runs to comfort, right? And you use comfort as uh, an escape. Comfort begins to be your fortress and your God and your idol and your alternative form of salvation. Instead of using comfort as a sin and escape, say, hey, Lord, I, 
I care a lot about comfort. Maybe I can be a person that shows hospitality to other people. Maybe I can help comfort others, come alongside them when they're struggling or when they need encouragement, when they need to be built up. But, but pray and the Lord will show you how to use the gifts, the stewardship of, of this body and this life that he's given you for the sake of righteousness. The last verse says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And we're going to talk more about this contrast between law and grace, but I think we just want to kind of make a simple clarification here that last week we saw there's two ways to live, right? There's living in Adam, doing life on your own. Adam and Eve said, we don't need you, God. We're going to be our own gods. And in Adam is sin and death. Or we can be in Christ, in the realm of, of grace and trusting in him. And what Paul is saying here is, is living by the law, being under the law, is actually still being in the column of Adam. It's trying to do it on your own. And that can't rescue you. Only Jesus can rescue you out of that sin, out of that death. Only his grace can transfer you into this new kingdom, can rescue you from that slavery to sin and give you new life. When you're rescued then, you might do the things of the law, right? You might actually then begin living out the morality of God's law, but it's not the law that got you there. It's what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross. That's, that's the exodus. As we think about the illustration I started with, you know, if you find a homeless guy and he doesn't seem to want to change, um, that can be frustrating, right? He, you offer him good food and he says, well, I'll just take what I'm used to. It can be frustrating for us, but again, we, we can recognize we've, we've done those kinds of things ourselves. We've lived out these kinds of absurd things. And so as I was thinking about this, I just wanted to clarify that, that what Jesus did for us is much more than saying, you're hungry, here's some food, right? He also said, you're, you're homeless, and now I have a home for you. And he said, you were naked, and now I have clothes for you. You were, you were all alone, and now you have family. I've adopted you, and, and you're my very own. So I just encourage you to, to per, continue to pursue what the scriptures say are true about us. That it's not just one little change in our life, but, but Jesus has changed everything in what he gives us in his death and resurrection. By faith in him, we can, we can be one with that new life. Let me pray for us, and we'll respond together in worship. God, thank you that you love us so much that you gave us Jesus. We thank you that we can be hidden in him, that just by simple trust, we can be united with this death to sin and this resurrection to new life. God, there's so much more that you've done for us. We pray that you'd give us eyes to see. Help us to discover your grace and your kindness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.